Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. I'm here with Dory Clark. She's the author of several books, including Reinventing You, Define Your Brand, Imagine Your Future, and the brand new Standout, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. She's been recognized as a branding expert, and she's a former presidential campaign spokesperson, as well as a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes Entrepreneur, and the World Economic Forum blog. Um, Long list of credentials, we could go on and on, but just want to say I'm happy to have Dory here with us today. Linda, thanks. Great to talk with you. So tell us a little bit about Standout, because I I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of the book, and I've just really enjoyed going through it. And as someone who has recently published her own book and trying to get my own breakthrough idea out into the public, this is just so relevant. But tell me, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, thank you very much. The reason that I wanted to write Standout is that, as you were alluding to, and I think probably a lot of your listeners have experienced, it it really seems like it's getting harder and harder these days for people to get noticed. I mean, now it's a great thing, of course, that everybody can share their ideas on blogs and podcasts and Twitter and Meerkat and, you know, whatever, but uh, it means there's a lot more noise. And so if you are going to really get noticed for your ideas, you have to be strategic about how you're presenting them to the world uh, so that they can have the impact they deserve to. Absolutely, and that's what I talk about in my book is, is how do you get above the noise. So one of the things you talk about is a breakthrough idea. What is a breakthrough idea in, in your mind? So really when we're talking about breakthrough ideas, um, it, it is the thing that you are known for. It is, you know, what is, what is your contribution to the field or to the dialogue? And I think some people get a little intimidated because they think, oh, my gosh, I can't be the, the world expert in something. But the truth is you don't have to be the world expert. You just have to be a local expert. And I think that that is something that is really worth aiming for, for any professional, uh, because it's the ultimate form of career insurance, of career security. Because if, you, if we actually are, uh, as you know, just about everybody is these days, um, wanting someone to be hiring us as an employee or uh, hiring us as a, as a consultant, you need to give them a really good reason to do business with you and not somebody else who may be a cheaper option. And the way that you can justify your fees and make them feel comfortable uh, and happy to do business with you is by cultivating a reputation as an expert. Not necessarily the number one person in the world, but you've got to at least be the person in your company that knows the most about XYZ or the person in your community that is the go-to person for web designs or for being a a florist or for uh, being a marketing consultant or whatever it is. I think that's so important, that, and, and no matter who you talk to, there is something that they've done that, that really can be put forward as, as something you can be a leader and, and be someone that's, that's got this great idea to talk about. So, but the question is, how do you actually go about developing this rep- reputation? What are some of the, the crucial steps that you would take to do that? 
Well, you know, in Standout, I actually outline uh, five different strategies that people can use to develop their breakthrough idea. Because ultimately, there's, um, you know, there's two phases to this, right? If you are a professional, you want to be known for the quality of your ideas and for the quality of your work. We, uh, we you know, we don't want to have this kind of Kardashian celebrity, right? Right. So it's about developing the ideas and then uh, building the following. So very quickly, uh, the strategies that, that I share for developing these ideas and really figuring out, you know, what, it, what is unique about you, what's unique about your vision in the world. Number one is creating a, a niche strategy where you really just kind of own the terrain around some small, uh, narrow area and then are able to expand out from there. So this, this would be the equivalent of, okay, I'm, I'm you know, not going to be an expert in politics in general because it's too broad, but I may be an expert in um, New Hampshire politics or something right. like that. And then once you own that, you can move from there. Number two is combining fields or disciplines. Uh, if you are bringing together two very different realms, that creates new possibilities and actually enables you to see things in a different enough way that you can actually have some, some significant breakthroughs. Uh, number three is contributing original research. And this doesn't necessarily have to mean hardcore academic research, what it means is that a lot of people have opinions and are very willing to share them, but if you have some, you know, real facts, if you have, if you have things that you have taken the time uh, to research, it will set you apart, whether that is doing case studies, white papers, surveys, um, you know, doing very careful product reviews, any of those things can really uh, make your reputation. Number four is about um, is about creating a framework for your ideas. So this could be, you know, how, how do you put structure around a certain field? So for instance, um, one of the case studies I cite in, uh, in Standout is Robert Cialdini, who is uh, an eminent psychologist. And he writes about influence and persuasion, which people have always been really interested in. But it wasn't until Cialdini, and, you know, relatively recently, 20, 30 years ago, that people realized, oh, my gosh, there's only six ways that people actually uh, are persuaded. That's it. You know, people have been talking about it forever. But Cialdini gave it a structure that was, uh, that was clear and understandable, and so everybody references him now when they talk about those topics. And then fifth and finally is attacking a problem that is worthy. And really the key here is that if you want to, to break through, if you want to get noticed, you should be working on something that people care enough about that they want to be talking about it anyway. That's great. I, I love that. That's so simple and easy to do. And and, and you talk about someone like Cialdini, who is now really what you can't talk about influence and how to influence people without thinking about Cialdini. And before he wrote that, he was probably just yet another academic. So he took that and, and really used that to differentiate himself. And all of these things are things that mere mortals can do. We don't have to be a you know, number one person in the entire universe to do this, but we can go forward and we can try and do this and, and as you said, become even a local expert and then from there beyond becoming the New Hampshire expert, then you become the expert in certain other things, et cetera. Um, so are there practices that ordinary people can take to come up with their own breakthrough ideas? Yeah, absolutely. So 
I, and in fact, one thing that I'll mention for people who are interested in, you know, really thinking through how this applies to their own life and, and what, you know, um, how, to, how to sort of dig out the gems in their own experience, I actually created a, a free giveaway. Uh, it is a 42-page workbook that I adapted from Standout called 139 Questions to Help You Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. And that is available uh, as a free download on my website, doryclark.com. So uh, for anyone that's interested, it literally is a series of questions, um, you know, with, with room like a workbook to, uh, to write down your, your answers to think about how it applies to you. Um, but broadly speaking, I'll say, you know, there, there's questions that we should be thinking about and asking. I mean, for instance, um, we live in a world now where what, what really matters is how your viewpoint is different than other people's. It's about, you know, what are you seeing that they're not seeing? And so I would suggest that people begin to ask questions like, you know, how is my background different than what's most common in my field? And what does that show me or teach me? Um, it could be that, you know, if you made a career switch, it could be that you had a different major in college. It could be that you have hobbies that have given you different insights. Maybe you come from a different cultural background. Any of those things are, are really interesting. Uh, it could be, you know, asking questions about how do you get into a beginner's mindset? So meaning, are there questions that, that a lot of people uh, ask about your field that it seems like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a really set answer to that. There's a reason why everybody says, no, that can't be done. But if you push a little further, is it true that it can't be done, or is it just difficult to be done? That was, right. that was actually what enabled Robert Cialdini to be successful, um, you know, in addition to his codification of uh, influence and persuasion. One of the things he did that was most remarkable, um, up until him, really, um, basically all research psychology was done in a laboratory environment. And he was the first person that actually responded to a very common question that lots of people uh, got asked, which was, gee, how do we know that what's happening in the lab will actually work in real life? And for years, the answer was just, well, we, you know, we have to trust that that's the case. But Cialdini took that question seriously, and he actually set up real-world field experiments in psychology, which was tremendously hard to do. Uh, it, he said it took three times longer than the normal procedures. They had to get permission from the university. They had to get permission from the police because they were out uh, in the community. But they did it, and he was actually able to get uh, dramatically interesting and helpful uh, information that no one else had gotten up to that point. And that's such a wonderful example because it, it just shows what you can do by just looking at something a little bit differently. Now, one of the things that, that I like that you talk about is combining fields. So can you give an example of, of how perhaps coming in from one perspective and, and then combining something totally different, what would be a great example of someone who's done that besides Cialdini who's, who's done his thing, but anybody else? Yeah, so, so uh, Linda, in deference to your uh, location in the Bay Area, I will cite an example uh, from there, uh, and that okay. is uh, Eric Reese, who is okay. the, yes. uh, the, you know, famously the uh, author of the book The Lean Startup. And, you know, this is pretty interesting because he actually, you know, the, what, what animated the success of this book and this movement, really, which it's become, is taking something that is constantly old school. It's about as far from tech startups as possible, which is automotive manufacturing, and borrowing the concepts of, uh, you know, lean manufacturing, i.e., how do you improve the processes on the plant floor, 
and taking those and transposing them into the world of startups and tech entrepreneurship. And by creating those things together, he was able to, to create insights that, uh, that, that otherwise just wouldn't have been accessible. And, uh, you know, today there's literally uh, three quarters of a million people around the world that have signed up for lean startup meetups. Uh, he is uh, dramatically impacting what is, uh, what is possible and what is thought to be possible in the tech world because he blended these ideas. That's, that's such a wonderful example, and, and I loved reading about that because it's so clear uh, that he just took something that was uh, accepted and transposed it to a whole new industry and created something very different. Love that. Love that. Um, can you give us an example of, of when challenging established knowledge really could change an industry and, and really um, uh, create, have, have, create the ability for someone to stand out? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's uh, there's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of good examples from the book, but one uh, that I'll grab in particular. This guy is a former client of mine. Uh, his name is Eric Schott, and he is the head of the Icon Center for Genomics and Multiscale Biology at wow. Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And uh, and what was what was very interesting about him, um, he is considered today one of the the world's leading practitioners of biology. He uh, is a uh, famously profiled scientist. He's actually had not one but two different profiles about him in Esquire magazine alone. Um, he has also, on the academic side, done more than 200 peer-reviewed papers on everything from Alzheimer's to diabetes. Um, so he definitely has made a name for himself. But interestingly, he was extremely controversial early in his career uh, and, you know, to a certain extent even today because he was really the first person um, who was in, in a really vocal way arguing for uh, the importance of big data in biology. Um, typically, you know, the way that biology had been done, because it was the way that biology had to be done, they didn't have the, uh, they didn't have the tools for it, was you would take a gene, you would have a hypothesis about what that gene did, you would test it, and it would take forever. And this becomes problematic when you realize exactly how many genes there are in the body, um, that you could, you could spend hundreds of thousands of years and not get any meaningful results. And so Eric, who actually, uh, you know, again, in another example of mixing disciplines, he had originally trained as a computer scientist and mathematician. He was familiar and comfortable with quantitative tools, and uh, he was arguing that this could be valuable in biology. A lot of biologists violently disagreed with that and, uh, and said, no, you know, this is uh, perverting the scientific method. You need to have a hypothesis. You need to, you know, be slowly and steadily testing these things. And uh, he had a lot of, uh, of pushback. And um, so anyway, as a result, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was very controversial. People would literally uh, walk out of his lectures. And, um, but, you know, he's 15 years later, he's essentially won. And, uh, and so what I mean by that is that the scientific establishment has come around to the idea that big data is important. But, um, but it, was, it was tough. Um, but in the end, you, you, if you're challenging ideas, are able to really make a mark on the culture. And I think that's that's really critical. Now, what's interesting is 15 years later, today, I'm sure if you went and talked to people in the industry, they'd say, gee, well, this is the way we do it. You know, we look at biometrics and we bring in all these things. And, and people forget that, that there was so much uh, pushback 
years ago, and it now becomes part of kind of the, the way things are done. So it, it's fascinating. So you spend quite a bit of time in the book telling us how we get that idea out there. And maybe you could you talk about building a network, building an audience, building a community. And we can't go into all of that, but could you give us just a couple of key suggestions as to what you need to do once you've got that idea? How do you go out and, and build that following around it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, really briefly, Linda, um, as you're alluding to, there's kind of a three-step process in spreading your ideas. First, you build your network, which is where you start communicating to a small group of trusted advisors and supporters. So it's, it's really where you, you get your team members on board, so to speak, and you get honest feedback. Next, you begin sharing your idea um, with an audience, meaning you are making your idea findable to like-minded people. You are uh, you know, starting to blog or starting to do public speaking, things like that, so that the broader world is beginning to hear about your ideas. And then third and finally, uh, you build a community, which you know, my definition of that is that this is the point, this final point, where you're no longer the only one talking about the idea. Other people have bought into the idea. They think it's valuable. They think it's exciting enough that they want to share it with each other. So, I mean, Eric Reese cannot be in 84 different countries at once leading right. lean startup meetup groups, but he doesn't need to be because the idea has uh, gained enough traction that other people are very happy to carry it forward even without his presence or participation. That's great. You talk in your book about Peter Shankman, who created the, uh, the service helper reporter out, Harrow, and sort of how he got there. And he became a connector for, uh, for other people who were saying, gee, I'd, I'd like to find out about PR opportunities. So I just love the way that now there's a community around that that sort of it almost lives on beyond the individual. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, when, when you have a community, uh, it, it really is about more than just you, and it, it provides, uh, it's successful because it provides utility for, for a lot of people. That's great. That's fantastic. We could talk about this for hours because I love this topic. I want to ask you kind of a different question here. In your experience, have you found there's a difference in the ability to stand out between men and women? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think that, um, that, you know, ultimately there's a, perhaps a couple of factors at play. One, of course, is that historically women are socialized to want to put other people into the spotlight rather than themselves. So yep. there may be, uh, there may be a, a hesitancy about, uh, you know, really fully embracing uh, standing out. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think everyone would like to be recognized for their ideas, but uh, women may be just a pinch less likely to, uh, to step forward and really own it. Um, the other factor is that, um, you know, when it comes to these things like, uh, you know, we were talking about building your network, right? Um, this early stage is really critical where you are, in fact, getting feedback from, but also help and support from the people around you. And women are less likely uh, to have these kinds of, of really powerful early stage networks where you can get that boost. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, where, where you are out in Silicon Valley, there's been a lot of talk recently about the uh, severe dearth of women in venture capital. Of oh, absolutely, yes. And so if you, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing if you can go to your, uh, you know, to your golfing buddies and, uh, and, you know, bounce around some ideas and they all happen to be partners at Kleiner Perkins. Uh, if you are a woman, 
perhaps your uh, your group of buddies uh, does not immediately fit that profile. Uh, so there are some structural obstacles, but uh, certainly for, for any individual, uh, if they're willing to, to work hard and, and really make an effort at it, I mean, you know, absolutely, uh, the, the, the potentiality is there to be able to um, to break through. And in fact, I was really pleased in the book to profile a number of smart and high-profile women like Rita Gunther McGrath, who's a uh, noted Columbia Business School professor. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's fantastic. And again, this is such a, a fascinating topic. We could talk for hours, but uh, we do have to let Dory go. Before we do that, though, I want you to go back. You talked about a free resource, a 42-page workbook with 139 questions that are helpful to people starting out in the process. Can you tell us again about that and where they can go find that? Yeah, thank you so much, Linda. So uh, so folks can actually download that uh, right on the homepage of my website. It is doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K. And uh, if people would like to continue to connect, my books are Reinventing You and Stand Out. Uh, they're available online and in, in you know, the uh, discerning real-world bookstores. And, uh, and besides that, I'm also on Twitter at Dory Clark. That's fantastic. Thank you, Dory. Pleasure to have you here. Um, This is Linda Popke. Until next time, thank you for joining us with Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. If you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.leverage2market.com.